Good morning again. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Matthew 17, 1 through 13. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The word of God says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, <clears throat> and his face shone like the sun, and the garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we finish this sermon and we look at the other points here that your spirit would just convict our hearts. Father, I pray that we would be able to focus on the glorious Christ. Father, whatever my opinion can be quickly forgotten, and that your spirit would help us to meditate on your word, not to just be hearers, but to, to be doers of your word. Father, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, <clears throat> last week we were looking at this text, and we got through the first two points, and um, now we're going to finish the next two, and I just kind of want to go over a little bit, rather quickly, what we were looking at in the first part. And we started with the Heidelberg uh, Catechism, which asked, what is the only comfort in life and death? And of course, the answer is that, that I, with body and soul, both life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. There's hope, the scriptures presents hope, but your hope has to be to know God, to seek God, to to want to know Christ. 
the hope is not uh, in achieving your own goals, but the hope that, is, that presents in the Bible is to know God and to have a deep relationship with God. Uh, Jesus has been presenting this, and as we've been going through this text, we've seen that Peter has made a strong confession about who Christ is. And Christ then talked about how he's going to go and, and die on the cross. And, and this aspect of suffering uh, that Peter was so against that, no, Christ could not go and suffer, we kind of looked at and said that suffering because of obedience to Christ is a goal to be reached, uh, not a tragedy to be avoided. And that kind of doesn't really go with our, our thinking. We, we tend to think more in lines of avoid pain and suffering, uh, live pleasurably. But Jesus presents something else, that being obedient to Christ will involve suffering, and it's a, it's a goal to be reaching, not a tragedy to be avoided. And as we're looking at this, the way that we do that, the way that we can live this way, looking at suffering in this fashion, is by uh, Christians must gaze on the glorious Christ to live with a fulfilling purpose and a loving hope. That, that's the way that this is going to happen. The only way to look at suffering as a goal to be reached rather than a tragedy to be avoided is by gazing on the glorious Christ. And until we are gazing on Christ, we're going to see suffering as an obstacle, something that we need to avoid, something that we need to get around. And in fact, if we think we consider a life of suffering and whatever that might be, whatever that might look like, where it involves being obedient, we'll say, no, I, I really don't want that. And then if it involves that suffering because of obedience, we're like, no, I, this can't be God's will for my life. Uh, I, it, there must be something else. And so we'll try to go around that. And as we're looking at this, the first point was made that hope is in Christ. We see this hope in Christ, and we see uh, this hope in Christ in two different aspects. The first is that Christ was not only a man. Yeah, he was man born of a woman, but he's not only man. And they were able to see this Christ uh, glorified. John sees him again. We, we read in the text this morning in Revelation. Uh, what an image to, to think about, to contemplate. Uh, Christ uh, in, in that fashion. Uh, this had a big impact on the apostles' lives. But we also see that... Um, Christ transforms us. So it's not just that he's transformed, but he is working in us for our sanctification. He, he is transforming us, and that word transforms appears in two other contexts, uh, both used by Paul, one in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and that has this idea of transforming your mind. And the second one is found in 2 Corinthians 3, 18 where we are being transformed. Not that we are transforming ourselves, but God is doing the work in us to transform us, uh, to make us more into the image of Christ. And we do this, our responsibility is contemplating on God. Now, we can go outside, we can go on a hike, we can travel around the country, and we can see different landscapes, and we say, wow, God sure is creative. We can go down to Houston Zoo and look at all the varieties of animals and say, wow, this is, this is really neat to see how God is so creative in all these different animals. But to really know Christ, you have to read his revelation. There's no way around it. You can't go out and, and, and look at and, and somehow be revealed Christ and who he is, his character. And, and that is an important aspect of how we read our Bibles, how Bible reading transforms our life. It, it has an impact in us because as we're reading the text, 
Our point is not just to read a narrative, not just to read a story, but to really understand what God is doing in that passage. And I use the example of Achan, how we see how God is very purposefully delaying showing who, who is the person who had taken from that which God had set apart, and giving him opportunity to repent, but Achan wouldn't step forward and repent. God had established a whole law that, that they, he could have taken an animal and gone to the high priest and, and, and confessed his sin and sacrificed the animal and been right with God, but he chose not to. He hid his sin. Uh, another example, I didn't use it last week, but is the conquest of Jericho. Uh, could Jericho have been saved? Well, we know Rahab put her faith in God. What's, what's the deal with all the, the marching around? Is, is God like some... Uh, drama queen up there just playing around with the people he's about to destroy and like, oh, look at the anxiety they're having now. No, of course not. Each time they're marching around, each day that goes by is an opportunity for them to repent. But instead of repenting, they harden their heart. And it shows God's character. He's merciful and loving, but he's just and righteous. And sin has to have a consequence. He's just not going to let them go. They could repent, but they chose not to. The hardness of their heart. And as we read the scriptures to have a life that, trans, to, to read it in a way that transforms our life, is we have to see God in the text. It's not just about stories of people marching around and blowing horns. It's about God being merciful. Now we see also that there's hope in death. And when we looked at death, the, the fact is that <laughs> uh, hope isn't the first thing we think about when we see death. In fact, uh, far from it. Well, we, we don't consider death as something hopeful, but if we have death in Christ, there is true hope. There's hope, and, and as we saw this, there's hope in that, uh, that life is in Christ. We are in Christ who's in God. The other hope is hope that comes through knowing correct doctrine. And I, I made this point, and it's a very important point. Sometimes we use popular culture to try to comfort ourselves. And I use the example of somehow when, when people pass away, sometimes we'll, we'll say lightly, oh, God has another angel, as if they, they convert into some type of angel, they go to heaven. And, and I'm not really sure what the image they have of this angel is. The paintings that we have of angels is either fat, naked babies or men that look very effeminate. Uh, so I don't know if they're thinking that their loved one is turned into that. But that's not true, as we see Moses and Elijah are, are walking around, conversing, having a conversation with Jesus. They're, they're, they're people. What brings true comfort in life is not to give yourself a lie, but to look at the scriptures. It doesn't matter how good the lie is. At the end of the day, it doesn't bring true comfort to your life. It doesn't satisfy. It, it doesn't do anything other than leave you hopeless. There's real hope. Real hope found in Christ. Now, that's where we ended off last week. And the next two points, the first point is hope in life. We have hope in life. Uh, we see there in verse um, uh, 5, 5 through 8, it says, while he was still speaking. So here, Peter's going on about this whole thing about making these tabernacles, right? He is going to make this tabernacle. He's going to make three um, he's probably thinking here we can put Moses, Moses on this side of the mountain, and we'll put uh, Elijah over here on this side, and then we'll kind of make like a, a bigger one for Christ over here. And he's like already 
measuring out. I don't know if he's got a tape measure with him or what he's doing, but he's contemplating this and thinking and presenting this idea to Jesus. Like, this is really good that we're here because we can do this for you. In that moment, something miraculous happens. It says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, uh, that word for overshadowing has this idea of engulfing, like an engulfing darkness. Uh, when we think about clouds and when clouds descend and, and it gets real thick, and it, it's usually very, very dark, right? Uh, I remember this uh, one year I was uh, skiing in Bejar in, in Spain, and I was there with some friends, and uh, they were kind of done for the day. A front was coming in, and they said they were taking off, and I said, well, I, I want to go down one more time, and as I'm going up the, the ski slope, uh, the cloud just came in. It was so dark. And I got off, and uh, it, I couldn't see hardly any, any feet in front of me. I mean, it was just, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to fall off a cliff, and they're not going to find me until spring when everything thaws out, right? And, and they're just trying to go down. Because when a cloud descends, there's a darkness that happens there. Um, the end of the story is I did not die there, just in case you were wondering how that story ended. Uh, but here, it's not a darkness. It's a cloud that engulfs them, but it, it shines. It shines brightly. And not only does it shine brightly, but, but it talks. It's a cloud that talks. Now, I don't know how many of you have, have gone outside and, and laid on the grass and, um, and kind of looked up uh, at, the, at the clouds and said, oh, look, there's the, the Eiffel Tower. Oh, look, there's a T-Rex over there. Uh, I don't know if you've done that, but in my experience, I've never had any of them talk to me. I've never had one say, yes, I am the Eiffel Tower, you know? I, I've never had a conversation with them, not, not a two-way, you know, I mean, I, I might have said something to them, but they've never responded back to me. Here, there's a cloud that's talking, and it, it points out something very interesting about God's character, and that God uses whomever or whatever he chooses to use. He uses evil kings. He uses Nebuchadnezzar. He calls him my servant. He uses a donkey. He uses Balaam's donkey. Had the people stopped singing, praising Hosanna, he would have used rocks to scream out. God uses whomever he chooses to use. He's going to use a cloud. Now, what was the reaction of this? You can imagine what the reaction would be. I mean, can you imagine having a cloud talk to you? What was the reaction? Verse 6, it, it says, uh, oh, sorry, uh, they, the cloud speaks, and what it speaks is it, it gives two declarative sentences, two declarative thoughts, and then one imperative. Uh, the first is that this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Uh, in this, uh, this idea of sonship, God, uh, the Father, God, they're all equal, but they're presented in different relationships. Uh, God is presented as the Father, and he sets forth a plan, and he has absolute authority. Uh, Jesus is presented as a Son, and he does the will of the Father. He consistently always submits to the will of the Father. He, in fact, he, he doesn't come to do his own will. He comes to do the will of the Father. He, he says that over and over again. Here in this text, when, Jesus, when God declares that this is his beloved son, the sonship aspect, I don't think, is necessarily claiming the divinity side of him. 
I think it's presenting something else, which is uh, this idea of him being the Christ, being the anointed one. We know from 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there's this situation where David uh, looks out and sees the tabernacle, and he's got a house, he's got the house in Jerusalem, and uh, he sees the tabernacle and he says, you know what, I, I'm going to make for God a house. Isn't that great? He's going to make God a house. And God says, you're, you're going to make me? I put my feet on the earth. What house are you going to make for me? You can't make a house. You know, I'm going to make for you a house. It's going to be a whole dynasty. And he says that there is going to be one that will sit on your throne and he will rule forever. And, he's, and God says that he will be a father to him. This establishes what's called the Davidic Covenant, and it's a covenant that, that shows that Christ will one day come and rule on David's throne. But in this, from that moment on, the kings of Israel were considered the sons of God. It's, an, it's a concept that even when Israel had a king, they weren't the sovereign. Like, like they weren't coming up with their own laws. God was still sovereign in control, and they had to enforce God's law. They didn't come up with their own laws. They enforced God's laws. Now that, that was their point. So the kings appear, and we see king after king appearing. Um, but the verse, if we go back to Matthew 17, it says, Beloved son. Beloved son. Now, uh, this aspect of beloved is kind of interesting because it marks a special relationship. It marks a very special relationship. In fact, the word in Matthew is only used two other times. One's found in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. You remember Jesus was going to be baptized and came out and the dove descended. There was a voice that was heard that this is my beloved son. And then it's used also in Matthew 12, 18, where Jesus was being rejected by the leadership and uh, the, Isaiah, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah was used and this aspect of he's the beloved son in whom he's delighted it is again repeated. In, in, in fact, in Matthew... Uh, this aspect of beloved is always in direction from God to the Son. You don't see anybody else called beloved in Matthew. You don't see Mary. You don't see Joseph called beloved. It's only the Father to the Son that this aspect of being beloved is. Now, um, when we think about that, it, this is, it marks Jesus to be very, very special. So, someone very, very different. There is... Uh, He's the son, which I think marks this aspect of being the Christ, the anointed one. He's the king, and he's a beloved son. But not only that, the other statement is, is um, uh, who am I well pleased? Well pleased. This, uh, this means to consider something as good and therefore worthy of choice. It's something that we will consider as good and therefore we choose it. Now, all of us have different opinions. And in fact, um, if we were to start taking surveys of where to eat after church, uh, some might say the best place to eat is McDonald's. Oh, man, that is, you go get a, a meal, you got your drink, you got your fries, you got your hamburger. It's, it's, it's worthy of a choice. Some might go, what? McDonald's? Get out of here. No, no, and, and you might mention another restaurant and say, this, this is, is worthy of choice. In this I find delight. 
and, and we could argue back and forth. But this isn't human perspective going on about Jesus. This is God's perspective about Jesus. And Jesus is saying he is worthy to be chosen, to, to pick him. He, he finds delight in him. And it's, of course, quoting from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, 1, where it says that uh, he delights in this, in this person, this chosen one of Israel. It has this idea of to take pleasure in or to be favorable to someone. Now, um, why does he find this pleasure, this delight in him? If we look at Isaiah 42 and we read the context, we see that this chosen one, he, he does the will of God. He rules in righteousness. He does consistently the will of the Father. Now, we think about this a little bit and develop it. We think about this aspect of kingship. We think about the kings of Israel. How many of them followed God completely? Well, there was David, man after God's own heart. But he failed, didn't he? And he failed big time. How about Solomon? Solomon had a ton of wisdom. He should have been able to make it, right? He failed too. See, it's not until we get to Jesus that we find a beloved son who is well-pleased by the Father. He, he takes pleasure in him because he obeys. He submits himself to the will of the Father. Now, based on these two declarative sentences, these two declarative thoughts, there comes the imperative, which is listen to him. Now, this, this isn't just like let your ears perceive the sound of his voice. I could, I could play some music and, and uh, you could listen to it and you could say, oh, that's interesting, you know, just so that you wouldn't have to say, I don't like it at all, right? Uh, you could say, oh, that's interesting. Uh, what does interesting mean? Who knows, right? Uh, but that's interesting. And then you leave and you don't think about that song ever again. That's not this idea of listening. This idea of listening is obeying. In the Hebrew thought, uh, if you obey someone, it's because you have listened to them. If you're listening to them, it's because you're obeying them. He's saying obey Christ based on the fact that he's the beloved son, based on the fact that God finds him well-pleasing. Therefore, you're supposed to go and listen to him, to obey him, to do what he says. Now we look at the reaction of the disciples and what they do is found in verse 6. When the disciples heard this, well, they started having a, a celebration. They were just tickled, he says. And they felt so giddy inside, and they started dancing on the top of the mountain. Right? No. They fell on their face, and they were terrified. They were scared. Never had an experience like this. Never had a, a cloud talking to them. Never had this brightness situation like this. And they are terrified. They were aware of God's presence, and they didn't take it lightly. Let me just pause to make a quick application here about God's presence. Many times we live without considering God's presence. Somehow he, he stays in this room, and we take off down the road, 10, 15 miles over the speed limit. God's not here. He's back at church. And we live a life without the fear of God. Flip it. 
doing whatever we want. I, I know. I know. I do it. And it takes constant confessing this. Here, they are aware of the presence of God, and they don't take it lightly. Now, we see what they do is that, um, verse 7, and Jesus came to them and touched them. We saw in verse 1 that Jesus took the initiative to take Peter, James, and John, and then led them up the mountain. Now he's taking the initiative, and he goes up to them, and he touches them, and he gives two imperatives. The first is, get up, to, to rise up. The second is, don't be afraid. Do not be fearful. The response to Jesus' words is that they lift up their eyes, and they see no one except Jesus. That's all who's left. Moses isn't there. Elijah's not there. The bright cloud is no longer there either. Just Jesus. Them and Jesus. This develops a couple of points um, that we see. The, the first is to obey Christ. Obey Christ. Uh, Christ did the will of the Father. And because he did the will of the Father, he, uh, he had God delighting in him. Now, if Christ had God delighting in him, the question we should be is, how can we have God delighting in us? How could we have God love us? The good news about that question is, how, does, how can we get God to love us? The question to that is that God already loves us, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten Son. In fact, before the foundations of the world, God loved and had planned for Christ to come and die for our sins. But there's a problem. And that problem is, is that sin separates us from God. In fact, not only does it separate us from God, but we incur God's wrath. That's what sin does. Go to John, because you think I'm making this up. Uh, go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. In verse uh, 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, sin separates us from God, and not only does it separate us, but we end up having God's wrath on us. This aspect of wrath we see up here in other texts, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that God has revealed himself to us, and we decide to reject it, and his wrath is upon us. What can we do? Well, God sent his son to die for us. We can put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. We can put our faith there and have salvation. We can be saved. Now, what happens when we sin? Do we stop being a child of God? Well, no, you don't see a single passage in all the Bible where God adopts someone to be their son, to be their daughter, and then unadopts them. You don't see a single text like that. So it's not that you cease to be their son, his daughter, but you do break that fellowship. In John chapter 1, verse 9, it says how we can restore that fellowship, and it's through confessing our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, when we say obey Christ, and looking at that first point, obey Christ, uh, 
does that mean that I go through the Gospels and I just read the letters in red? I mean, those are his words, right? And so I'm just going to be one of those guys who just reads the letters in red, you know, the words in red? No, because we know when Christ was, was, was walking and, and they find the two guys, found the stranger on the road to uh, Emmaus, uh, he started speaking about from the Old Testament how the Old Testament talked about him. So we can look in the Old Testament and see how it, it reveals Christ so that we can obey him. Now, when we look at what Peter is doing, we're still considering obeying Christ. Peter's idea of building the three tabernacles, one here, one over there, maybe a bigger one here, did it in any way violate any of the laws of God? I mean, think of the 613 laws that are established in the Pentateuch. Did it violate a single one? No, it didn't. So we could say that what Peter had suggested was a good thing because it didn't violate God's law. Uh, another way we could look at it, is it right to honor those who have been faithful? Well, yeah, uh, Moses was a man of faith. Hebrews talks about that. Elijah was, and do you have to give a reason to honor Christ? I mean, he's Christ, right? You don't have to give a reason for honoring Christ. So is it bad, the idea of building the tabernacles? Yes, because it's not what Christ was wanting them to do. See, there's some things that aren't necessarily negated, but we have no business being involved in them. We get sidetracked with these other things rather than obeying God. And really, we could ask the question this way. Is it better to do something that I think God will like, or is it better to obey God? See, the source between the two is very different. In the first one, I become the source. And I say, hey, I, I really like this. I bet God will like it too. And therefore, I'm bringing God down to my level. On the other side, obeying God looks at his word, what he has revealed, and says, I'm just going to obey that. I'm going to put attention to that. I'm going to practice that in my life. It has two different sources. The problem with what Peter was suggesting is that he wasn't looking to see what God wanted him to do. He was coming up with a good idea, but it had nothing to do with God's will. Many times we get involved in this. We get sidetracked being busy in stuff that doesn't matter. And God has revealed a whole bunch of stuff of how we're supposed to live, how husbands are supposed to treat wives, how wives are supposed to treat their husbands, how children are supposed to live, how, how you're supposed to work. Paul goes into how you're supposed to work. Many times we are at work and we're there just kind of playing on our phone and all of a sudden the boss man comes and we start cleaning up and doing some stuff, looking all busy, and then he leaves and again we're on our phone. Paul tells us how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to work, obeying Christ. Now the second point there is to rely on Christ. So the first is to obey. The second is to rely uh, I want us to consider a little bit the situation there up on the mountain. So there's the mountain. Uh, the cloud comes in, and all of a sudden, Peter, Jacob, and uh, John are face down on the floor. Uh, they don't get up until Jesus comes to them. What, what's interesting is that they're not there laying down, and uh, they, they kind of turn to each other and say, how about we develop maybe a 12-step 12, 12 program 
for getting ourselves up. You know, we'll kind of crouch and then da, 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 and then finally, victory, we're standing. They, they don't do that. They, they don't talk about how they can encourage one another to get to a standing position. They, they don't come up with some type of idea of how they can conjure up enough strength to be standing again. In fact, it's not until Christ comes to them and touches them that they are able to get up. Many of us try to live the Christian life trying to just conjure up. We've, we've got a game plan. Uh, I, I sinned last week, but i got a plan for this week. And I'm going to do these things, and I've got it all planned out. Before we even leave church, we failed. Why? Because the Christian life, you can't live on your own strength. It, it comes with a daily dependence on Christ. And if you don't want to depend on Christ, there's no way of, of living this life. There's no way of, of trying to encourage one another and say, we're going to do this together. No. It only comes through Christ. Christ is the one who works in us for his honor and for his glory. In fact, he, he ends up saying this a little bit differently in, in John chapter 15. You remember John chapter 15 is where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he says, if you decide to cut yourself off, you can bear lots of fruit, right? No. If you want to bear fruit, you have to abide in the vine. In fact, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. Oh, I can do something. You can't. You're going against what Jesus is saying. Unless you rely on him, unless you abide in him, unless you live in him, you can do nothing. Now we see that there is this hope in life, but now we're going to see that there is a hope in Christ's kingdom. A hope in Christ's kingdom. And as we look at this, we see verses 9 uh, through 13, and I'll I'll, I'll go quickly through this because to extend this to a third Sunday would be a little bit too much, right? So we're going to work through this rather quickly. Uh, Jesus told them, he, they're coming down the mountain, it says, and Jesus commanded them to say, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Of course, implied there, to be risen from the dead, you have to, be, you have to die, right? You, you know, that, that has to happen. So he's implying that there's going to be a death that's going to happen. Uh, before, Peter was not willing to accept this. But now, uh, they want to start thinking theologically about this. And we see this in verse 10. It says, And his disciples asked him, Why then do the uh, scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, there's Elijah up there. You know, why is it that they're saying that he has to come first? And Jesus decides to answer them. And he says, of course, they're referencing to uh, Malachi 4, 5 where it says that before the day of the Lord, Elijah will come. And, of course, Jesus answers and says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So... Jesus explains to them, Elijah did come. 
And he did, was the forerunner. He was Malachi 3.1. He was that forerunner that came ahead of time and proclaimed the kingdom. But the problem is that they rejected him. They didn't want to accept him. Not only that, but Christ came and, and he talked about the kingdom. And he did miracles and he taught and he did all these wonders. And they rejected him as well. So the, the first thing that we see here in hope in Christ's kingdom is that we see a Christ's messianic kingdom is postponed. Christ's messianic kingdom is postponed. And of course, that's from our perspective. We see that he offers the kingdom and they reject it. From God's perspective, he has this all planned out. But he, he gives this. Now, in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, Elijah was prophesied to come before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period, but it's an extended period of time where God is focusing his attention on earth. And it involves judgment, and there's a couple of references here. Isaiah 13, verse 6 and verse 9. Isaiah 13, 6 and 9. And Ezekiel 30, verse 3. God's going to judge the earth, going to judge Israel, going to judge the world. But it also involves a blessing of Israel, and through the blessing of Israel, bless the whole world. Obadiah, verses 15 and 18. Joel 2, 30 through 32. And uh, Micah 4, 1 through 8, it mentions on that day, of course, mentioning the day of the Lord, uh, there's no one going to be preparing soldiers. In fact, swords are going to be uh, hammered into plows. We're not, everyone's going to have their own vineyard. Everyone's going to have their own fig tree. It's going to be a time of peace. But they've rejected the forerunner and they've rejected Christ. So now this is postponed. So there is Christ's salvific kingdom. Christ's salvific kingdom. Christ's salvific kingdom is not the Davidic literal reign on David's throne. It's something else. We see in Colossians, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, because you're going to think I'm making this up, and I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and uh, 14. It says, For he rescued us from the dominion, that word dominion has this idea of a reign, of a kingdom. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What kingdom is that? Is that the messianic kingdom? No, he's not sitting on David's throne, sitting at the right hand of God. Uh, there is a transfer to his kingdom. And how do we know it's salvific? Well, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we see that Christ, we have hope in, in Christ's kingdom, and this kingdom is a salvific kingdom. This idea of a salvific kingdom presents two ideas to us. The first is that it gives us a purpose for living. A purpose for living. Since you have been rescued by this new king, your purpose should be to live for that king. Right? I mean, that's obvious. It'd be absurd to be rescued by someone, and then you're living for the person that had you imprisoned, right? I mean, that doesn't make sense at all. Why would you do that? So the fact that you've been transferred to a new kingdom means you have a new purpose for living, and it's his purpose, whatever he's established. It, it redefines our marriages. It redefines how we treat our children. That purpose of living redefines how we work. It gives us a new purpose. The other thing it does, it has power over sin. Uh, before, we were under the dominion of Satan. 
But now we've been transferred to the kingdom of his son and gives power over sin. In fact, if you go to chapter 3, uh, 1 through 17, we, we don't have time to do that, to, to read all those verses. But he says, if you've been raised with Christ, uh, then seek those things which are above. And then he says, uh, verse 5, consider your members of your earthly body to be dead. You're no longer living for your own body. You're no longer living for your own flesh, for those desires. Those are dead, and now you're living because you have power, because you've been transferred to the kingdom of his son. We have hope in Christ's kingdom. It's a salvific kingdom. Now we look at this, and we have to ask ourselves, how do we do this? And the way we do this, as it says there in verse 1, is to seeking those things which are above. So I come back to my proposition that I did earlier, that Christians must gaze on the glorious Christ to live with a fulfilling purpose and a living hope. In fact, if we're not staring at the glorious Christ, if we're not gazing on him, we'll have a life without purpose. It's not that you want to accomplish a bunch of things here. Oh, you will. But they'll be worthless. It's not that you won't have some little bit of hope. You will. But it'll be a worthless hope. It'll be like believing a lie. It doesn't give any satisfaction at all. So how do you do this? Well, we have this hope in Christ. We have this hope in death. And we also have a hope in the life through Christ's kingdom. And it requires to accepting Christ as our personal Savior. Have you done that? Have you ever trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And are you living now for him? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your word. Father, we would, we would be foolish to think that we can somehow find hope in, in someone other than you. It'd be foolish to think that somehow we can we can somehow conjure up a purpose for living, a true hope. Father, as it says in the Catechism, our only hope is in you, in life and in death. It's in you. Father, I pray now if someone here has never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that today will be the day of salvation, that today that they will trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Father, for other of us here, we probably already have accepted Christ, but we're not gazing on Christ. Our mind is focused on a bunch of other things, but we're not setting our minds on things above. I pray today that we can confess that and turn away from it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.